I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Ben Valdez-Hempel. Ben studied political science in undergrad, but has since made the switch to working in soccer. He has spent the past year and a half running communications for Manchester City, U.S., and locally for district sports. Ben, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Grant, for having me on today. I'm very excited to be here. Like I said in your intro, you studied foreign policy in undergrad. What made you interested in foreign policy to start, and how did you then make the move to sports? Yeah, so I got interested in foreign policy back when I was a teenager. We hosted an exchange student from Lebanon who lived with me here in my house, and just through conversations with him and learning about Lebanon and learning about the Middle East, that made me extremely interested in foreign policy and America's foreign policy abroad. So then I studied foreign policy in college and then moved to D.C. and worked in D.C. in international development for a few years, realized that I wasn't really seeing the difference because I was spending all day at a computer. I wasn't seeing the difference I was making in person. And I really didn't like that. But at the same time, I realized that during the 2018 World Cup that I really love soccer. And I was like, I want to make the, the switch from working in politics to working in soccer. And so I've been doing that for the past year and a half. Are there any surprising similarities between soccer and politics that, that we might not see initially? I still spend all my days at a computer. <laughs> um, but again, that is obviously like I study. I went no, to college. That's, that's what you're going to end up end up your day at, at a computer. I do uh, think about the fact that like we all have very different jobs among me and my friends. And yet for almost all of us, our physical labor every day is the same thing, which is like clacking on a keyboard. That's certainly not the case if you like work in other industries, but like for you know, like most of the white collar type jobs that we all have. It's like, how is our physical labor exactly the same every day? Anyway, sorry, that's a total. No, 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 you're, you're not wrong at all. Like, <laughs> like my roommate where it's international development and he's in Excel spreadsheets and cost point and software 24 all day. And then I work in soccer and I work in Canva and on Adobe Premiere Pro doing creative things. And but we're both doing the same thing of sitting at our desks all day. <laughs> Okay, but aside from that, different worlds. Uh, no, because politics still exists in soccer. That's the reason why we're having this podcast is that politics still exists in soccer, both in like the, the higher up of like FIFA and UEFA and the CONCACAFs and all of that, but also in like the day to day. Like I work with, even though I work in a really small organization with district sports, it's only four of us. Politics still exists because politics exists between people, whether it's inter-organizational between the four of us or with our external partners. We partner with DC Public Schools and DC Parks and Rec. And so like there's politics there that we have to like lobby them essentially to give us like field permits and give us field time and things like that. So so politics still fully exists in my day to day. It's just a very different kind of politics. You know, you fell in love with soccer and you decide I'm going to pick Man City, what drove you to this British Premier League team rather than a much better and more handsome club of Chelsea? 
my father actually grew uh, when I was growing up was a Chelsea fan. So I'm half Salvador and my dad's from El Salvador. And part of Latino culture is just soccer. So my entire life from the moment I could walk, I was kicking a ball, playing soccer, watching soccer. And I never really had a Premier League team like at all. And then when I was, I would have been 18 or 19, Manchester City came to play in Minneapolis against Olympiacos at TCF Bank Stadium. I went to the game and I was surrounded by Man City supporters and I fell in love with the culture and the people and the Mancunians. And also they had just won their first Premier League title with the Aguero goal, which is like the most iconic Premier League moment in history. So the combination of just being surrounded by the culture, that moment that had just happened, I fell in love and have been a Manchester City fan ever since. And I've been very lucky to only experience very good moments during these eight, nine years of being a fan, but I'm waiting for the other foot to fall. It will fall eventually. (laughs) So let's talk about the World Cup, which just wrapped up in sort of amazing fashion this last week. What were your takeaways from the World Cup, both in terms of the games and in terms of the politics surrounding the games? In terms of on-field, It was the most entertaining World Cup of my life. I woke up at 5 a.m. to watch Saudi Arabia beat Argentina. Like, I never thought that would have happened ever in my life. And then just like Morocco's run all the way to the semis was absolutely amazing. So on field, most entertaining World Cup of my lifetime, 100%. Terms of off-field money talks, it makes the world go around. And even though it's been proven since 2012 that Cutter paid FIFA off for the World Cup, and then it was proven that they used essentially slave labor to build their stadiums, and that these people were dying while building these stadiums, and people protested this, teams protested this, like during the Euro qualifiers, Germany was protesting, Denmark was protesting, and it still happened, and people still went to it. At the end of the day, money talks, I really hope that, I doubt this, but I really hope FIFA has learned their lesson from this. And realize that like the people do care about where the location of the World Cup is, how these stadiums are being built, the humanitarian reasons for the World Cup as well. Money talks. Well, I guess what incentive does FIFA have to really be responsive to that? I mean, I guess there is some like there's a public relations challenge and people, you know, are upset about it. But like the show goes on, you know, like revenues are generated, etc. So I don't know, like what would be the what would be the tipping point that would what, that would mean that in future World Cups, there actually is some like accountability or some, you know, some higher standard that's required? I think that like there was a, a good enough outcry for this World Cup, both on social media and in general. Uh, if you look at the numbers, when at the end of the group stage, only around 750,000 people had attended this World Cup or had made the trip to Qatar for this World Cup, whereas Russia after the group stage, double that amount of people had gone to that. So Qatar did not make as much money that they wanted to make off of this World Cup. And I think that, like I said, money talks. So if if FIFA is realizing like, hey, if we give this tournament to a country that is problematic, then and people aren't going to go to it, then that's a problem. Like even when the World Cup was starting, people were like, oh, they're like Qatari is paying fans to fill the stands because like there weren't enough people like that's bad. Uh, That's a bad look. For Qatar and for FIFA, they don't. They want to avoid that. So not only is there like this massive like social media outcry, but also like I think there was like, in terms of like attendance and money being spent in Qatar, that money was also not. There wasn't as much money that could have been spent there. 
That's so interesting because I think as a more casual watcher of the World Cup, like I had no idea that that was the case. I was like, oh, everybody's flooding to Qatar to see the World Cup. So it's really interesting that it actually was like below expectations or below hopes. I don't feel like that narrative has been out there yet. And that's not being publicized for for a reason. Like they don't want that getting out there. And also, like if you go on like TikTok or Instagram, there are a lot of people who attended the games and were doing essentially like reviews of the various like hospitality options, like the fan fan fests and like the the cabins that they had, the cabins. And it's just like you're paying like a hundred dollars a night to stay in essentially like a shipping container. And so like it's just like that's insane. And then after spending two thousand, three thousand dollars on a round trip flight to Qatar. It's it's nuts. So people don't want to be spending exorbitant amount of monies in a country that they a don't want to be in, and then b like they're not even getting a good bang for their buck because it's such an expensive a country to live in in the first place. So how much of this was in your mind about the authoritarianism and problems of Qatar, and how much of this is the fact that Qatar just isn't a very exciting country to be in? Right? You mentioned Russia having double the attendance, but like there's stuff to do in Russia where it was held has like other things to do. Qatar was like a blank slate for FIFA to just like build whatever. And so there wasn't like a culture of like restaurants and hotels, like all of that was built for the world cup. And so it just wasn't an attractive place to go anyway. So do you think the lesson is we can't partner with authoritarians or we just have to partner with better authoritarians. Grant, I feel like it's not even about better authoritarians, but just like more attractive tourist destinations. And like the authoritarian, you're, I think what you're saying is like the authoritarianism of the regime is actually like not that relevant. What's relevant like is like, is this a place that you want to visit because it's like a nice tourist location and there's like things to do and it's geographically like a lovely place to visit, etc. Yeah, well, I, I'm a well-known FIFA hater, so I will surface this Jerome Valky statement. He's the FIFA Secretary General. Leading up to the World Cup, he said the following, I will say something which is crazy, but less democracy is sometimes better for organizing a World Cup. Because they don't have to deal with permitting. They don't have to deal with public sentiment. They just go to Qatar and they say, here's some money, build us some stadiums, and they'll do it. And so I've seen some recent news and reporting that Saudi Arabia is trying to go in for 2030 and trying to host the World Cup and the Olympics. But Ben, what do you think? Well, I don't think it should be in Saudi Arabia on at all, especially not in 2030 when we just had an Arab country hosting it eight years prior i think it's going to be a similar lesson to qatar like in terms of geography and environment they're the exact same country and like if you already are are like struggling to get people to go to qatar you're not going to get people to go to saudi arabia and like they're even worse when it comes to women's rights than qatar was so like why are you going to keep sending the, the world cup to a country where so much of the rest of the world's population is not welcome or doesn't have the normal rights that they have outside of that country. It's just like, you're not going to make money off of it. I, I agree with what you're saying of like authoritarianism makes it easier to build stadiums, makes it easier to host a tournament because they don't have to deal with public sentiment. They could just do whatever they want. But then you struggle with the um, 
getting the people to come to the tournament and making the money from actual attendants and the hotels and the air flight or the airfare and all that other stuff. Do you think that Qatar is better off now than when they started this whole mess? Do you think the sports washing worked for them? I don't think so. I, I think that uh, you're right. We are going to remember that World Cup forever. But I think that the World Cup in general was tarnished by the location. Like I said earlier, on the field, greatest World Cup of my life. I, rem- I will remember waking up for that Saudi Arabia game. I'll remember that, fa- that, that final for the rest of my life. But at the same time, I'm still going to, I'll be 60 and I'll think back to it. I was like, man, they just really had to host the best World Cup of my life in the worst possible country. It didn't work. And when Messi won and was hosting it and they made him put a bisht on, or they, they put a bisht on him, the Qatari traditional like cloak to raise the cup, I was like, wow, they're really trying to continue sports watching through like the entire thing. And like, I, I think everyone will remember that it was held in Qatar. They're going to remember. People died to build the stadiums and FIFA didn't do anything about it. And that's going to be tarnished. It's going to tarnish the best World Cup ever. You know, I, I, I think I've like already said this. I'm kind of a more casual uh, soccer observer and I did watch the final. I found it extremely exciting. <laughs> I realized that, that that is not representative of what most of these games look like. Um, but it was, it was really, really fun to, to be a spectator. But what I was going to ask, Ben, is like, it feels to me, and this is a little bit anecdotal, but I, I suspect it would be borne out empirically too, that Americans were like much more engaged and jazzed about this World Cup than, than previous World Cups. And I guess first I'm curious, like, why is that? This has been building since 1994, since the last time we hosted the World Cup. And the reason why America turned in, tuned in so much to this World Cup was because Two reasons. The women won 2015 and won 2019, and the men haven't played in a World Cup since 2014. So think about that. It's been eight years and the women have won two World Cups in that time, meaning that that grew the sport immensely already just in that eight year period. And then the men were back and men and the, the, the men in this country were very excited that the men were playing again. So then they all tune in as well. So I think it was a it was a big deal that we had just won two World Cups. The men were were involved and that there was also just more of a storyline to this World Cup. Messi, Ronaldo, their final World Cups. People were paying attention to that. France, Mbappe, can they do it again? And then I think as the World Cup went on, Morocco made that insane run. I keep coming back to that Saudi Arabia win because it was absolutely insane. But just like moments like that made the World Cup more interesting and more people tuned in. I think the this World Cup final was the second most watched World Cup final in American history right behind, I think it was the 2015 World Cup final for the women. And that was because it was played in Canada. So it was played in a primetime slot. So it was like 7 p.m. our time, whereas this one was at 10 a.m. on a Sunday. So if the, I think like with this next World Cup in 2026, it's going to be the most watched soccer event in American history, 100%. It's just, I mean, it's sort of interesting to me because it feels like between World Cup gaining interest and enthusiasm in the U.S. and, you know, and also in the last couple of years, Formula One gaining a lot of followers in the U.S. thanks to Netflix, etc. It's like all of a sudden the U.S. is like tuning into all these sports that the rest of the world has been like 
obsessed with forever. And we've just been kind of like, you know, not paying attention or something. And now we're like finally engaged in these competitions that so dominate the sports lives of of a lot of the rest of the world. And I'm just like wondering how that, I don't know how that changes things for how the U.S. sort of engages internationally or globally when it comes to sports, in which also we are not a dominant player. Yeah, well, the the reason why these sports are becoming more popular here in the United States is because these companies, F1 and the Premier League and other sports organizations are investing heavily in advertising here in the United States because we have the strongest, largest consumer base in the world. We have the most, the largest population with the most amount of expendable money, and we love sports, and they know that. So that's why F1 made that that Netflix show, and they went from, like, back in 2018, no one cared about F1 in this country. It went from nothing to exploding in three years because of a Netflix show. So they knew what they were doing with that money. And I think that, that people are, through these sports, are learning more about things outside of their borders, which is great for them. And it's great to see that they're all of a sudden paying attention to like what's going on in Europe, what's going on, what like, oh, oh there's an F1 race in the Saudi Arabia. I think they have one in like Malaysia. Like, wow, that's so cool. And then they see like this, the landscapes of these countries. And that's that's great for that. I think I sort of agree with you. Like, I feel like a lot of the the sporting events that Americans really like rally around or like get, you know, kind of like have a lot of collective enthusiasm for are things like American football, which don't really allow for any global engagement. It's very domestic. It's very kind of like inward looking. And so the fact that we're getting jazzed about F1 or or the rest of the world's football feels to me like kind of a cool change. I don't know. Grant, do you agree with me? I think that's right. I just wanted to bring up one of the the most interesting studies on a soccer adjacent thing that whenever I talk about soccer, I always bring up this study because I think it's such a good example of what soccer can do. There's a club in England called Liverpool, which is very famous for being, uh, I would say, underachieving, but they're doing pretty well uh, over the last few years behind a striker whose name is Mo Salah. Mo, or Mohammed, is from Egypt. Traditionally, England, unfortunately, has a long history of racism in soccer, but they did a study of when Mo Salah came to Liverpool that the hate crimes against Muslims went down significantly in Liverpool, the the city, and hate speech online by Liverpool fans went down by 25%. So it really shows that when you bring in the world and compete and fall in love with soccer, it can change who you are as a person. That's not always the best, like, you know, because sometimes it reinforces nationalism and nationalistic tendencies. But I think there is some good there as well. But Ben, I sort of wanted to, to drill down on that specifically because I think soccer does have this issue with racism sort of everywhere. and. The U.S.-Mexico rivalry is often heated for more reasons than on the pitch, and you see stuff in Europe with fans throwing like bananas onto the field when there's an African-American player or an African player. How do you think about the way soccer works in both sort of bringing the world in in a positive way and also struggling with these issues of, of racism and political difference? 
Well, they call it the beautiful sport because it brings the world together. And that's, it is true. But at the same time, like the world has their differences and we have these racial flare ups. And I think that FIFA doesn't do enough to, to handle those or to respond to those. I think they sort of just like sort of shrug it off and just like, they give like, oh, a stadium ban. And then like, that's it. But like, it's a massive issue in Italy. It has been in Mexico. Outside of like racism, they have the homophobic chant that they chant when they're when their goalkeeper kicks a ball for the national team. And FIFA has been trying to respond to that. But like because it's so deeply ingrained into these societies and into these cultures of like this deep hatred towards towards gay people or towards black people or other people of color, these measures by FIFA are not enough at all. They need to be handing down stronger fines towards FAs. They need to hand down bigger stadium bans. And at the end of the day, like it's the individual fans that need to feel the pain, not necessarily the overall FA, even though I think that they should be getting fines. These stadium bans need to be longer to show that like, hey, this is not okay. If you are going to keep throwing, throwing bananas at, at black people or chanting racist stuff like what happened to Raheem Sterling against Chelsea three years ago and now he plays there which is wild but if that those things keep happening you need to say like all right you're not going to watch the game go home watch it on watch it on your couch the stadium's going to be empty and that hurts like for England if they have stadium bans because of and Italy too if they have stadium bans because of racism the actual government is going to feel that because these are like their big soft power entities like these are the reason why they like for england like the premier league is their largest money maker and their largest like tourism incentive and if their stadiums are empty and there's no like culture around it like they're not going to be able to make money and they they just need to do better fifa needs to do better in addressing these issues so let me pitch something and see what you think i was very sad to see during the world cup there were going to be a number of european clubs or european sides that we're going to wear the one love armband supporting LGBTQ rights because Qatar obviously does not have a great history of those. They were put off from doing that because they were told that anyone who wears this armband is going to get a yellow card in a match. Do you think it would be better instead of a monetary fine or in addition to a monetary fine and a stadium ban to have in-game consequences for out-of-game problems with your fan base because i think l3 would change real quick if they were given a penalty kick for homophobia i've actually never thought of this before i was really disappointed in fifa's actions to do that obviously because i'm pro lgbtq sports and politics have gone together forever it's a form of expression and it's your ability to to express how you feel about political issues and you shouldn't be doing things like that But I think when it comes to like racism and homophobia and exclusionary political actions, I think that FIFA that I'd be interested in seeing that that would be cool in terms of Mexico. If they said that word, chanted that word when the goalkeeper kicked it and then the ref blew his whistle and was like, all right, penalty kick to the other team. That would change real quick. That would change real quick. Even if it just happened, they would probably FIFA would announce it and then they would like think that they're bluffing and then they would happen. And that would, it would never happen again. So I've never even thought about that before. That's not a bad idea at all. Is that the sort of thing that a host country can try to 
exert influence on FIFA to do. Like, I, I'm just thinking about like, okay, like next World Cup, US is going to have a little bit more say. So, or like, I, I, yeah, I guess like, where does that come from? <laughs> and it's very hypothetical. So obviously we don't know. I think it was actually quite interesting to see how much control Qatar had this past World Cup. I don't think I've ever seen that before. I think Russia had control as well, but in a different way, it was much more just like you're in our country. We're going to do what we want without necessarily enacting working with FIFA on that. Whereas with Qatar, they very much, because they bought the World Cup and Qatar has the amount of money that they do, they very much continued to exert their influence over FIFA and say, hey, we're not going to be okay with these armbands. Hey, we're not going to be okay with beer in the stadium, things like that. And when they had said, like, when FIFA had said this summer, like, okay, the armbands are okay. It's a peaceful protest. The beer in the stadium is okay. That's part of the sport. That's part of the culture. And then today, it was like the week before the World Cup was about to start. People had already spent all their money on tickets. Qatar was like, nope. I've never seen that before. I've never seen it before. I mean, granted, I've never really been, or we've never really hosted a World Cup in such an authoritarian and it's such an authoritarian country, but it was crazy to see. And it would be interesting to see the United States do the opposite of being like, all right, you're here. We're really one of the most liberal countries in the world. Uh, it's true, even though people here don't believe that. All right. So you are going to, we're going to be okay with like pride flags everywhere and I guess beer, obviously, we're going to have beer in the stadium. Imagine Budweiser. If they did, couldn't have beer in the stadium in the United States, it'd be insane. But yeah, like I, that'd be cool to see the United States do the exact opposite of just like flip the switch. I mean, but Zoe, that's exactly what you get when you get in bed with authoritarians, right? You get the, the speedy process, but you get all the downside of authoritarianism. And, and I think this, you know, this World Cup showed what that means. And I think... Unfortunately, America is too driven by the dollar to make some of these pushes because Qatar was like, you're here, you're locked in, take it or leave it. I think the U.S. would really struggle because of the, the power of big business in the country. Um, these problems aren't only an issue at this like large scale World Cup level. This is also an issue at the club level. Specifically, the Premier League has a lot of problems with kleptocrats owning clubs, with authoritarians owning clubs. My Chelsea is changing ownership because of the war in Ukraine, because the former owner is literally a Russian kleptocrat who's laundering money through soccer. So how do you think about this issue? Like, soccer is such a, a big money-making thing for the world, not just not just England. How do you keep the richest people in the world and the worst people in the world from being so deeply ingrained. I mean, you, you can't <laughs> like I, I, the simple answer is you cannot. It's just like, like I said at the beginning, money talks and money makes the world go around. And that's going to continue to be that way throughout our entire lives. And I, like you said, you support Chelsea and Chelsea was owned by a Russian autocrat. Now I believe they're owned by an American and I support Manchester city who is owned by an Emirati prince who is like one of the richest people in the world. And UAE isn't a perfect country either. I'm aware of that. I've been there. I've been to Qatar. But at the end of the day, like, I don't know what kind of actions can be made by the Premier League or by the or by other governing bodies to prevent things like this from happening. But I think it's just the way the world is going. I think it's the way the sport is going. 
look at Newcastle United. Newcastle United was bought out by Saudi Arabia almost a year ago now. They were bought out, I think, I think a year ago now. And they went from a bottom of the table team and now they're in like, what, top eight right now? Something like that. Because that, at the end of the day, that's what money is what makes a good soccer team because you can buy the best players. And, and it, even though I'm a city fan, I do hate it. At times, I wish there was less of a disparity between the top clubs in England and the bottom clubs in England uh, in terms of money. I mean, Brentford just joined the Premier League and their biggest signing was like a $30 million, $40 million, excuse me, pound signing. And the Man City spends that on like a left back who will see like five games a year. So it's I would like to see that disparity addressed. I just don't really know how it could be addressed. For those of you at home who are not huge soccer fans, you know, in the U.S., most of the sports have a salary cap where you cannot pay players more than a certain amount. They do revenue sharing across the league. So basically everyone has the same amount of money. You draft from a very similar pool. The Premier League is not like that at all. They get players from all over the world. There is no spending cap. The disparity between the top spending clubs and the bottom spending clubs is massive, as Ben was saying. And you can strongly correlate spending with winning. Like it is like one to one, the most spending clubs win the most trophies. Unless period. you're Manchester United. Unless you're Manchester United. Does there not have understand. to be any, like, is there no geographic, like, residency requirements or anything like that? No. There is, you have to have a certain amount of British players, correct? I believe you have to have X amount of native born British players on your team. And that's it. No, that's interesting. I, I think, like, like it's interesting from an immigration standpoint, you know, like, I, I mean, like, even if you, if you look at the, the makeup of, of, I mean, this is obviously in the world cup and we're, we're, so I'm like comparing apples to oranges here, I guess a little bit, but like in the context of the world cup, it's like, you look at France's team and like, it seemed to me that most players were of West African descent, even though like, I mean, obviously like somebody like Mbappe is born in Paris and, you know, has, has been there in life, but yeah, I just think like the the kind of like immigration and racial dynamics that are obviously very present in these countries. There's ways in which like they come to a head in sports that I that I wonder if it changes public either public opinion or perception of 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 race and immigration in those in those contexts. I don't know. That's a little bit well, uh in terms convoluted. of France. <laughs> in terms of France, a lot of people back in 2018 when they won the World Cup jokingly and sort of realistically we're like Africa won the world cup because I think it's like 80% of the team is of African descent, West African descent. And the, the thing is, is all those players are born and raised in the poor neighborhoods of Paris. And that is because after the France 98, win, they took their winnings and invested it in their inner city kids, gave them opportunities to play, gave them fields to play on, gave them supported the local youth club teams. And they built up they, and they gave they they essentially helped those players to get to where they are today. And that is a reason why they are the best team in the world right now. I know they didn't win the final. They are arguably the best team in the world right now. Winning in 2018 final this year, they'll probably do wonderfully in 2026 and beyond. Looking ahead to to the next World Cup and we've been talking about how the U.S. has been 
more engaged and, and Americans are sort of more interested, what should the U.S. do to try to win the next World Cup in front of a home crowd? I think there's uh, two answers to this question. There's a short-term answer, which is how can we do in 2026? And then there's a long-term answer of how can the United States in general be a better soccer nation in the future? Short-term answer 2026, the majority of the squad from this past World Cup will be the majority of the squad in 2026. We had the second youngest squad in the World Cup. Ecuador was the youngest. But when it came to starting minutes, if you average out the starting minutes of every squad, we were the youngest starting squad in the World Cup. So the majority of the squad will be in 2026. So the short-term answer is to continue sending our younger players who are 18, 19 years old right now to Europe to get Champions League minutes, to play in those environments and to be around the best of the best. I know it sucks that it has to be in Europe, but it's true. That's just a fact. And then the second thing is to keep, well, well, two more things. Send players to Europe, players in Europe, continue playing in Europe, continue playing at high levels. Like they need to play for teams that are going to win Champions League and be under the best managers and learn from there. And then so that's on the player side. And then on the on the manager side, near the end of the World Cup, there was some issues with our current manager, Greg Berhalter, in terms of his player management during the World Cup. Uh, he may or may not have had some issues with Gio Reyna. The facts aren't necessarily 100% on what happened. But off the field and on the field, we need a better manager that creates a team identity and does better at managing the players. One of the, the criticisms of Burhalter is his continued use of MLS players. I don't have anything against the MLS, but MLS players are not the best players in the world. I'm sorry. And we need a, a manager that will look more towards our European, our players playing in Europe, understanding what they're learning, what they're playing there, bringing those players in and then building a team identity with those players. Because right now, Greg Berhalter, the reason why we lost our games is because he was focused too much on defense. He made bad substitutions and just tactically that needs to, to change for the next World Cup. And there needs to be a more cohesive group for the next four years, more cohesive identity for the next four years. And I think if we do that with the players we have, quarterfinals, semifinals, maybe, maybe it's possible. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. Winning the whole thing, no, no way. But in terms of long term, this is sort of what I was talking about with France. The United States needs to get rid of their pay to play system. So I don't know if you guys know what the pay to play system is. The pay-to-play system is how sports and soccer, especially soccer here in the United States, works. There are youth clubs all over the country, and they are extremely expensive. If you want to play in the best youth club in your local area, it's going to cost your parents upwards of $10,000 a year for the entire year of soccer, which is absolutely insane. Most parents do not have 10 k to spend on their kids for soccer. That's why the best soccer teams are usually suburban usually predominantly white. And that is definitely an issue that needs to be addressed. If we can help support, just like France did, their inner city kids, their poorer kids, there's so much talent in this country that is unaddressed. And I'm not talking about like, what if our best athletes played soccer? No, I'm talking about soccer players in this country that are Latino, that are African-American, that are immigrants. Like, and they don't get a shot because they don't have the money to play on these best clubs. And they just, once they hit 18, they stop playing 
because they have to go work and like build a, a life. And they didn't have the opportunity to even pursue a college career or a pro career at all. So long term, if we address the pay to play system, invest more in our inner city, invest more into our children of color who love the soccer immensely in this in this country. If we did that, we would be the best soccer country in the world. And I, I fully believe that. All right. So we, we've just unloaded a bunch of soccer onto a self-proclaimed casual soccer observer. So Ben, I would like you to make your best pitch to Zoe as to why she should a continue following soccer between the world cup and why man city should be her club of choice. <laughs> oh my gosh. You should continue watching soccer because soccer is the best sport in the world. It is the most entertaining sport in the world and it's got some of the best storylines it's got the best ability for underdogs to win games and to win championships look at Leicester city in 2016 it's just like it's the love of my life i play soccer <laughs> i play soccer three to two to three times a week uh, i watch soccer almost every day i highly recommend it you're gonna if you continue to like just watch and find a team that you like I'm going to tell you why you should support Manchester City in a second, but find a team that you like and just get to know the club, get to know the history of the club. You're going to quickly realize why this is the most watched sport in the world and why people love it so much. Now, why I think you should be a Manchester City fan is because we win a lot, <laughs> at least recently. But in addition to that, the history of Manchester City is beautiful. I really attest to the history of Manchester City because I'm from Minnesota. Minnesota sports traditionally suck outside of the Minnesota Lynx and the Minnesota Timberwolves. So Manchester City from the 1900s until 2000 struggled. We had like one or two championships throughout that entire century, but they had their ups and downs and that's beautiful. And the club culture in Manchester, the, 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 the soccer culture in Manchester is immense. That's where the football, hall, uh, the football museum is and and now we win. So it's a lot of fun to watch us win. We have the best striker in the world. We have the best manager in the world. It's yeah, I, I highly recommend being a Manchester City fan, getting to know the club history, getting to know the people that support the club. Because when you talk to actual Mancunians about the club, this is their life. This is their, their blood. And even though they may have issues with like the owner and where the money comes from, this is the this is their church. This is. This is what they go to every Sunday. So I, I highly recommend a, following soccer, and B, becoming a Manchester City fan. If you don't become a Manchester City fan, please don't become a Manchester United or Liverpool fan. That's all I ask. I will make a quick pitch for Chelsea. London, much better town than Manchester as a general matter. We have a new manager, which is exciting. You know, you get in on the ground floor. And then uh, two words, Christian Pulisic, U.S. superstar, continuing to come into his own. So highly would recommend the Chelsea Lions. With that, let's turn to our final segment where we each talk about something we're following either culturally or politically this week. Zoe, what are you following? I've been following this really sort of shocking and outrageous story that was broken by the New York Times about George Santos, who was recently elected to Congress in Long Island. And he had this kind of amazing backstory in which he's, you know, he's a son of Brazilian immigrants. He went to Baruch College and then, you know, found his way to Wall Street, worked at Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. And then he, he founded this animal rescue charity and so forth. And it turns out that basically it's all fake. 
he seems to have embellished or really sort of made up a lot of his resume or fabricated a lot of it. And I would definitely recommend reading the New York Times article itself because it's really just like a great work of investigative journalism. But it also seems to me like there was a lot of kind of low hanging fruit when it comes to anybody just sort of fact checking did he work at these companies, et cetera, that that nobody did during the actual election cycle. And so it's kind of perplexing to me that in 2022, we can get through an entire election cycle for federal office in which somebody wins the seat and it turns out that most of their resume is false. Like, how is that possible? How does that go unnoticed? So it's a little bit crazy, but it's been an interesting story to watch, and I'm going to continue following it. Is Appa Research dead? <laughs> like, how? Right. How like, does that may, I don't know if, like, I, yeah, and I actually don't know the dynamics exactly of, of what his election looked like, but, like, did nobody check these things? I don't know. So, it's wild. So I'll, I'll just throw in that there was Oppo done. It was in a massive Oppo dump, but it didn't get amplified in the right way. But I'll also say, If this is what's happening in New York, where they have the biggest media, the most extensive news coverage, and this was a key race, if this is happening there, imagine what's happening in the state and local areas across the country where the media is dying. Yeah, it's important that the Democrats have strong oppo and that they market it appropriately. But what's more important is that we have a media that cares and roots out corruption wherever it is and on whichever side it ever is. Ben, what are you following this week? I'm following Scientology. A few weeks ago, I was on Twitter before going to bed and I saw a tweet that had gone mini viral about someone who used to be in the Scientology church and about how the wife of the head of Scientology has not been seen in public since 2012. I'm blanking on all these names right now. And I was like, wait, what? And then I went into a deep Wikipedia dive on Scientology. I was up way too late that night just reading Wikipedia. And it turns out the wife of the head of Scientology has not been seen in public for a decade. And no one knows where she is. This woman who was in Scientology was friends with her. And after she realized she hadn't seen her in a while, she went to the cops. The cops investigated and within 24 hours had said, she's fine. She's with the head of Like she's away somewhere. She's alive. And a lot of the general public is saying that's bullcrap. And yeah, so I just went into this deep dive about Scientology, what they believe in. And it's it's crazy, man. So I'll do something on more of a lighter note. This week, I wanted to highly recommend Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which is a movie that is out on Netflix now. So first of all, it's stop motion animation. It took 15 years to make it. And you can tell because of all the loving little details in it. It actually has a 30 minute making of documentary that you can watch also on Netflix, which I'd also highly recommend just because the machining of the models is just so interesting. The second thing I wanted to note is the music which is made exclusively from wood-based instruments. So woodwinds, strings, guitars, piano. It just gives you kind of a weird soundscape, but also one that fits so well with what they're doing because it's like 
the music in the movie really springs out of the movie itself rather than being a musical. But beyond the art, I have to highly recommend the story, which has an anti-fascism subplot, but it's mostly about accepting yourself and others for who they are. And it's honestly one of the best movies I've seen all year. So I'd highly recommend during your holiday break, taking two hours and watching Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and follow Ben at Benny underscore N underscore DA underscore Jets or Benny and the Jets. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by the Toymakers Union of the North Pole. Does your boss only work once a year? Are you only paid in candy canes? Have you had to shovel out the reindeer stables without hazard pay? Join the Toymakers Union to stick it to the big man. And after you're done with your collective action, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy. <laughs>